Hello and welcome back to the Business of Show Business podcast with me, your host, Jamie Boddy. Unpacking the skills needed for the entertainment and creative industries and celebrating those already in them. Today we are going stateside as I talk to Chelsea Parati. She is a professional dancer turned sport psychology consultant. In this podcast episode, we talk about the mindset needed for performers and creators to build longevity and the career they want. We discuss the importance of talking kinder to yourself, accepting what you can and can't control within your current situation, as well as other obstacles and triggers that may happen through your career. Now on with the show. Today on the Business of Show Business podcast, we have a doctor in the house. That's right, I'm joined by Dr. Chelsea, a professional dancer turned sports psychology consultant for dancers. She's joining me from the other side of the pond. Welcome, Chelsea. Hi, Jamie. Thank you for having me. No worries. So I originally become aware of you from Instagram, actually, social media, and I just loved what you do. And we'll get into it with the differences of dance culture in the US compared to the UK. But can you just give the listeners a little bit of um, an insight to you? Can you take us through your journey? Yes, absolutely. So I was trained as a studio dancer in the United States. So I spent, you know, all those hours, every variety of dance, right? Did the ballet and the tap and the jazz and the hip hop and the whole thing. Uh, I was very competitive with studio, but started to really fall in love with ballet uh, relatively late in life in the ballet industry, right? If I didn't really start till I was about 12, which is not old, but late in ballet. (laughs) And so, uh, kind of pivoted and focused on ballet. I did some apprenticeships with professional companies and was a professional ballet dancer for a year and then decided that I actually loved behind the scenes. I liked backstage better in the sense of teaching. So about 16, I was, uh, I would come to the company rehearsals a couple hours early, teach, you know, teach ballet to five, six, seven year olds, and then go to company rehearsals all day and realized pretty quickly that I liked my morning better. Like I liked teaching more than, uh, you know, rehearsing for our own shows. So I switched to more of the teaching, coaching kind of behind the scenes side. Uh, I coached a high school dance team for about 12 years, and that was very competitive in the U.S., and it's something that we, uh, that taught me a lot about coaching and leadership and, you know, motivating dancers and the competitive side, the mental side of, of dance. And then kind of parallel to all of this at the same time, I went to school for um, a while because I kept... I just enjoy academia and I enjoy learning and growing. And so I have a PhD in sports psychology and now I'm a university professor. So I get to take the academic side of uh, sports psychology and the mental side and apply it to dance. So a few years ago, I created a consulting business, being able to take the research uh, from academics and bring it to dancers who can actually use it every day. I always felt like there was this disconnect where academics research, and then it just stays with them and no one ever really gets to know what's going on. And that's not helpful. So I want to Uh, consume the research for people and then bring it to them in a way that you can get the bite-sized information you need and learn from it and take it back to your own classes and rehearsals and auditions and use it. I love that and I think like in all jobs you have good and bad people in those roles and you get dance teachers that maybe don't teach because they want to they might teach because it's the money in between performing credits it might be through an injury and then you get teachers that love to teach and they want to give that knowledge and I think 
that's what's coming across. And the fact is the dancers themselves don't often realise the skills they're learning because they're like, I've just gone to dance class. Well, actually, you're learning skills that see you through life. Absolutely. And that's something I love sharing and talking about. I feel like dance teaches us life lessons that if you only take class as a little kid, you still learn something. If you continue into adulthood, I mean, so many of, I think my major life lessons came through dance in some way, shape or form. And I, I love being able to help other teachers and dance educators learn how to do that a little bit more intentionally because it's going to happen anyway that <laughs> you're in dance and you're learning these lessons. But being able to be a little more intentional about how we can, you know, connect with our young dancers because they oftentimes will listen to dance teachers more than they will listen to an academic teacher or even a parent because they're in dance because they love it. And so if they are going to learn about motivation and grit and positive self-talk and all these good things during something they're already passionate about, that's going to help it stick and help it be something they can use for the rest of their life. Obviously, I stuck with dance for a long time, but stuff you mentioned there, I wish it's, it's stuff I how I approach the industry now, but I wish I knew as a younger performer because I think that would so many performers give up, don't they? Because they don't they fall out of love with it or they focus on the negatives too much. When actually, if they were able to kind of flip that script a little bit, you could actually mm-hmm. learn from it. And one thing that I've definitely got from your podcast, um, which is the passion for dance, if anyone um, wants to go over and give that a listen, please do. It's almost like learning from the results. And it's one thing when I transition more into marketing. You can learn from the data. Why didn't that perform well? Was it because of the imagery? Was it the targeting? And it's the same with dance. So can you talk us through a bit more maybe about why you are so passionate about mindset and then maybe just a few tips or tricks or things you think are some of the most common problems with young dancers and their mindset? Yes, absolutely. So I am on the same page with you as most of what I teach now is something I wish I knew then. And it comes out of how hard... Uh, the studio world was and the ballet world and uh, how hard it was on my own mindset and, you know, those issues. And I think dance has a lot of negative mindset. Most dancers grow up in a world where we are, we're given corrections constantly. And that's good. That's what teachers should be doing. Like they're there in class to correct your placement, correct your expression, correct how you are performing. But if all you hear as a 10 year old is fix this, fix this, fix this, this is wrong. That's not enough. Keep going it's hard to last. It's hard to persevere through that and find the positive. So what kind of brought me into kind of sports psychology and positive psych, again, is the stuff I wish I knew because you can take correction and feedback and use it as growth and not use it as a message that you're not enough. And I think that's the big mindset uh, tip and kind of shift that I hope dancers can learn is just the basic concept that feedback is information. Feedback is how we grow. Feedback is good thing. Um, I had one of my ballet masters. Uh, it was this is I think maybe the day for me in the professional world that everything shifted and it stuck with me my whole career since then. But he was teaching us. I think it was just a class, regular combo, petite allegro. It was really fast, and he had this ability. He had this desire, I guess, to really challenge us mentally. And so we would do a normal petite allegro combo. And then he would say, okay, reverse. All right, go backwards. Right. And then he would also, or go, you know, right to left or whatever. And then he would say retrograde and like go from count eight to count one. 
which is like, it fries your brain when you're trying to do really fast potato leg row backwards. Uh, so he loved to do that kind of stuff and challenge us. And he would always, uh, you know, lots of corrections all the time. And finally, somebody got really brave and spoke up in class one day and said, like, all you do is tell us everything we're doing wrong. Like, I never feel like I'm, you know, we're never, I'm never enough. I'm never good enough. And he just kind of stared at her for a little while. And I think he was genuinely surprised. He's like, wait, what? Like, why? you don't, you don't see this as a good thing. And he basically said that if I'm offering you corrections, it's because I see your potential and I believe you can be better. He's like, if I'm not talking to you in class, if you're not getting any corrections, it's probably because I wrote you off and I decided you're not putting in the efforts. So Why not either. And it was like, you're, uh, it completely changed my approach to class. And that I was like, it became like, I need a correction. If I don't get a correction by the time bar is over, I'm not giving enough. Or if I haven't, you know, done enough to get that. And it just shifted everything to that mindset of feedback is a good thing. Feedback is my teacher's believing I can be better. And that I, how do I take that information and grow the next time? And so I think that simple shift is so important. And especially in really young dancers, when you have, you know, middle school, we get into high school where we are all in our heads anyway, right? <laughs> and having a chance for them to kind of shift and see corrections and a lot of corrections as a positive is a huge mindset shift for dancers that can kind of change how they approach learning. Completely. And I think for those who are listening, who are more so maybe in the musical theatre world or acting world, or even if you are um, a photographer or presenter, we deal with rejection all the time. But actually, when you can take, obviously, feel those emotions, you need to feel them in that time. But then when you can pull yourself out of it, learn from it, like, did you wear the wrong outfit? Did you psych yourself up? Did you choose the wrong song? Did you not practice enough? So I absolutely love everything you said there. I would love to um, unpack a little bit the dance competition and dance studio world in America, because in England, it's um, quite different from what I gather from my professional career as a dancer. In fact, in England, it's very much we have certain syllabus and you can't move up until you've passed that or you're a certain age as well. Where Mm -hmm. in America, obviously, you have safety guidelines when you dance, but it seems much more Um, ability-based as well in dance, Mm -hmm. as opposed to ticking all of these boxes before you can even progress. Right. And I think there's a little bit of both. So there is some of the traditional, especially in the ballet schools, where they will teach a traditional Chiquetti syllabus, Vagadava syllabus, like those are still there for uh, the more pure ballet schools, but studios that are doing more of the, all the different styles of, you know, jazz and hip hop and class, that has changed to be so competition driven that it is, as you said, very much ability based. And I personally, um, I struggle with it and I judge a lot as well. And it's hard for me to watch a younger dancer who's doing skills well past their ability and their training. And it, that is, that's become a trend here. And I know lots of dance teachers um, here in the U S are also upset about it. And we don't like the trend um, that, yeah, you're pushing dancers past their ability. We're missing the foundation. And then as they get older, they're getting hurt because they don't have the physical foundation yet. Um, So I do think there, that difference is there for sure. We see that push for competition here. And I, what I gather as well, um, please do correct me if I'm completely in the wrong ballpark, but you have your competitions are like, 
statewide, countrywide, and they're quite regular. So you almost sometimes have to either increase your, the dancers increase their workload because they're in technique as well as competition dance, or you kind of maybe have to sacrifice the technique lessons. Because in England, we have like festivals and dance competitions over the last five years have picked up over here, but Mm -hmm. it's still in its infancy. So is that true in dance studios? Competition life is quite a big Mm -hmm. part of a young dancer's um, journey. Absolutely. And it's, you're right in that if you're in a studio, there's usually a, a good studio training will have a balance of technique classes and competition classes. So usually you still have a normal ballet classes, you still have like a kind of like tricks, like a turns and leaps kind of class that's still a lot still based in technique. Uh, and then you or, you know, combo classes that you might, you know, learn practice picking up choreography and picking up style and that kind of stuff. But then you still have a lot of competition. And that season is pretty long. Uh, In studios, it can be kind of February, March in through the summer. Um, School teams, it's a little bit earlier. But as you said, yeah, a lot of states have um, state championships for their high school teams that are very intense. There's national championships for school teams, for all-star programs, for, you know, and then national competitions, even in the ballet world. It's it can be very intense. And I do think some start to sacrifice technique for the ability to learn and perfect one competitive routine at, you know, forsaking all else, which I do think is a sad shift for us. And we should get back to that, those roots and foundations. Growing up as a dancer, when festivals and competitions weren't really that big, it become quite a shock when you were auditioning for dance college and then the real world, because all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm not the only male dancer or, well, there's all these other dancers where in America, it almost seems a slight opposite where competition is ingrained in you quite early on and that sense of comparison because if you're in a studio that does competitions you probably you want to be on the competition team and then you want to win the competition it's probably quite a lot that might weigh on a young dancer's mind yes absolutely and I think that's a good point is that you do start competing you know as young as four five I mean you can start really young and they it has become the focus and so for young dancers uh it's it becomes about the outcome, right? Of how did I rank this weekend? Or, you know, what kind of, what was my score in my solo this weekend versus last weekend? Or, you know, how our team placed. And mindset wise, I do think it leads to more burnout because we're training dancers that it's only worth it if you're externally successful, if these judges liked it, if you scored well. And so you end up with high school dancers who want to quit because they've been competing for 10 years by the time they're 15 and they're over it or they're the whole, all of motivation has been shifted to this external source of, I only dance if I get validated in a competition rather than training dance because you truly love it and love the, you know, how your body feels in movement, right? Like just, just for any creative, like you lose your motivation if it's, rooted in an external source, if it's about money, if it's about scholarships, like it's becomes hard to keep that internal motivation. And so for, by competing at such young ages, I do think we're losing that internal motivation for a lot of kids and they don't last very long because it's, you know, they're burnt out by teenage years. Can we then almost future pace that then in the fact of professional dancers and performers again, quite often attach their value or worth to, I'm on Broadway, I'm on the West End, I'm dancing in that new HBO show. So do you think that's a mindset that can stay with performers almost throughout their career or until they get that light bulb moment to be like, no, actually, let me do this for me? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, so with motivation, there's two different kinds of motivation, uh, primarily, right? So there's intrinsic, which is you're motivated from within yourself. You actually, you do something because you enjoy it. You just genuinely want to learn something new or master a new task. And then there's extrinsic motivation where you're motivated by some external source, praise, feedback, uh, money, jobs, you know, prestige, those kinds of things. And putting on the academic hat for a second, but the science shows us that the most elite athletes, including dancers, uh, the most elite athletes are motivated by both. And so it's not an either or. And I think people will say that these external sources of motivation, like I'm not supposed to be motivated by prestige or money, but it's okay if you are, it's okay that that's, you know, what gets you out of bed or what makes you prepare for that audition or what, you know, pushes you. But if you are purely extrinsically motivated, you're going to burn out faster because it is so wrapped up in stuff that's not in your control. And I think that that's really what it comes down to is having it. If it's all external, you can't always control, you know, that casting agent's opinion of you. You can't control, you know, whether, um, you know, you get that contract or not. There's so much you can't control, but intrinsically you, you can control, you know, you can decide where you want to spend your time. If you, something that truly brings you joy, you know, I think professional dancers, like we don't go take class just because we want to take class anymore. We take class because I'm supposed to. And I know in my professional ballet world, it got to a point where there were classes that I'm like, I used to love this class, but now I'm getting paid and I have to be here. And I somehow, I don't like it so much anymore. And that's true in motivation research that the if you used to be intrinsically motivated, it used to be something you love, and then you add an extrinsic motivator like money or whatever, then suddenly the intrinsic drops and we have to look for it again. We have to find it again. And again, the most successful kind of long-term athletes find that motivation in both intrinsic and extrinsic sources. When you say it out loud, I'm like, that makes complete sense. But I think when you're in an industry so much and you end up being quite tunnel visioned it's sometimes quite hard to take your eye off that prize to figure out is that a prize you actually want or is that a prize you think because the industry expects you to be there and I think for me one big um, shift actually when I transitioned more into the journalism and hosting what I do now was I was getting to a point at auditions I've been in the industry long enough that I knew what auditions I did well at who I worked for the people in the circles I worked in knew me but I was getting to those auditions and I just wasn't enjoying it or I was kind of dreading it, but not from a place of, oh, I might get cut, just dreading it to be like, what mm-hmm. else could I be doing with my time? And yeah. then when I shifted more to what I do now, I got the same buzz. No one knew me. So I had to kind of prove myself, find the areas of work. And as what you're saying there, I think I was getting to a point when I was attaching my my goals to what the industry thought. Yeah, a man of my age in the industry should do. So I absolutely love what you said. And you said it so concisely, which I'm sure will resonate with a lot of listeners. Thank you. And I think you're so right that we sometimes we have to reevaluate our own passion and our own goals and plans. And I'm a big goal setter. I'm a big dreamer. And I am all for that. But it's okay to stop and reflect and say, do I still want that same dream or have, have I shifted what I want or have I lived that out? And I'm not feeling that same drive. And I think a lot of creatives, especially we work hard because we love it. And then 
because we love it, we set these big goals. And then somewhere along the line, we can get misaligned of like, do I still truly love this? Or did I shift a little bit? And that's how I felt in my industry too, that I, like I said, I only did professional ballet one year and I am proud of that and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't long before I felt that I'm like, this doesn't actually fit me and what I want anymore. And when I found teaching, everything shifted again. And I was like, there it is. There's that light and that spark. And I want to keep doing this. Just taking a moment to pause the episode so we can all stop and reflect on all of the amazing information that Dr. Chelsea has shared with us. Later on in the episode, she shares her social media handles and also where you can listen to her podcast. I'll make sure to put those in the show notes for us. If you're enjoying the episode, don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave your review. Now back on with the show. And I don't know quite how um, COVID is in America, but in England, obviously the West End, as I know with Broadway, has kind of ceased for a while. Right. Entertainment work dried up. And a lot of performers are actually getting the time to stop and think internally. What do I want? What makes me happy? What makes me want to get out of bed? What's my why? Mm-hmm. But they're almost like, oh, why was I not thinking this four years ago, five years ago? And it doesn't mean you have to stop dancing at all, but mm-hmm. create the career you want. So I'd love to, um, and you discussed this in your podcast about taking ownership of what you can control and also stop giving power to things that you can't control. So I'd love to um, jump in on that topic with you, actually, and hear your thoughts on mastering what you can control and try not to let external things control you. Yes, absolutely. So that's a kind of mindset mantra that I used a lot with my like younger athletes and teenagers and trying to help them through competition. Um, and I always tell them, control the controllables. And it, it's not my phrase. I've you know heard, read it in other um, books and such, but I used to always use it as like a competition day kind of mindset or an audition day or something where, you know, you got to focus on you. You can't focus on all these things out of your control, but honestly it's become my personal like COVID mantra. Like it's just in the last year, like that's what's helped me. Um, it's what it's helped me focus so much with uh, what I can control and what I can't. So the idea is just to refocus yourself sometimes. Um, and we alluded to earlier about dealing with disappointment, right? Dealing, we all deal with so much rejection as creatives and it's so hard that control the controllables is a great kind of mindset around that. So basically you can control your, your effort, you can control your attitude and mindset, and you can control your reaction to what's going on around you, right? You can control, you can't control other people, you can control your reaction to other people. <laughs> you can control, you know, your your mindset the morning of a big event. You may not be able to control what happens to you all day, but you can then control how you, you know, shift your mindset as you need to, the amount of effort you put in. So with COVID, is it has really helped me because there is so much that's changed in the last year that's not in my control. You know, kids being homeschooled. I have two young children. My husband lost his job. We, I am a university professor, as I said, but I've been teaching at home. I mean, everything got uprooted in the last year. And that's really easy to get down and to get upset. And I definitely went through those negative emotions like all of us did. Uh, but trying to find that shift of like, okay, well, I can't control a lot of the decision makers in my area and what they're doing. So let that go. (laughs) That's okay. What can I control? I can control what I say to my kids about this. I can control my own mindset. I can control my own effort. And it was partially why my own podcast started because I needed a, I was like, well, I'm home and I want to do something else. And I want to speak to more people. And so it's that shift of not only controlling what you can control, but I think some of the harder part is letting go of what you can't control. 
And most, uh, I don't, I don't actually have the science behind this one. And I usually <laughs> like to point out the data when I have it, but I do think a lot of dancers um, are perfectionists and uh, they like being in control. Like, and I think partially it's because it's such a physical thing. Like our art is being in control of our bodies and we are successful when we are able to maintain control. And then that just kind of extends to the rest of our lives. And we like to be in control. And when we're not, it's very hard to deal with. And so learning to let go of what you are not in control of is a big challenge, but it brings so much peace if you can have that shift. Yeah, completely. I work quite a lot um, with performers to build up, to monetize their side hustles or help them when they do their career transition. And one thing that I know they struggle with is that they've worked their body to a point when they know where their leg's going to go. They know what they can jump the turn. They know what songs are safe to sing. But that's showing people how good you are. But when you have to like strip it back and do a CV and write how good you are, or when you have to pitch to people you've never met before instead of the same choreographers, it's really scary. So I think everything mm -hmm. you said there, and also thank you for your um, transparency as well in the fact of COVID even though you are a psychologist I can imagine everyone probably thinks oh she's got it she's like always going to have positive mental attitude but yep. everyone literally everyone will have to ride that yep. roller coaster of ups and downs so thank you yeah no you're welcome and I think to um, add just a little bit to that I think we do have this perception whether it's Instagram perception or you know people put out the best versions uh, and even though I am an expert in positive mindset it doesn't mean I have one all day, every day. Uh, it just means I've learned to recognize when the negative mindset's coming and try to change it faster. So I think the idea with, you know, positive psychology and sports psychology, it's not that you get rid of all negative emotions or that you never have them because that's not human, right? Like the human emotional experience is the whole range of emotions. And often the negative emotions are what make us good performers. So you're going to have the whole range the positive psychology and the mindset stuff is just learning how to recognize the negative thoughts that are coming, recognize the negative emotions, allow yourself to process those, deal with the disappointment, but have the strategies to turn it around and get out of it a little bit faster. Yeah, great. I will honestly open up about your podcast in a minute, but just touching on strategies and, and triggers there, like you, the older you get, I guess, in hindsight's 2020, the older you get, you might realize what some triggers are or have some coping strategies. But do you mind just quickly diving in on that and maybe just letting the listeners know? Because some people won't realize they have a trigger. They won't realize that that one particular thing, and it could be they follow someone on Instagram that actually makes them feel really inferior, or it could be there's one choreographer who actually makes them feel awful. So do you mind just quickly talking about triggers and maybe strategies? And then we will talk about your glorious podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, so I think it's about negative uh, self-talk. So self-talk is just what it sounds like. It's the things we say in our head to ourselves. And we always have a running script. We always have things that are going and your thoughts are running all day, all the time. And there's definitely going to be things that trigger that negative self-talk more for people for different reasons. And like you said, it could be a certain person that like you just want their approval so bad. And it could be the choreographer, a parent, a coach, anything, but there's somebody that you want their approval so bad that you like always have those running thoughts about every comment they say, you go, what do they really mean? And how can I, and you kind of go down a rabbit hole about it. Um, it, it can be anything. And I think the best thing to do is to just sit in reflection and try to understand your own triggers. And that kind of self-awareness is hard and it takes a lot of time. And 
back to the positive mindset, like no one's perfect at it. I still have to sit and think about it. And I'm a big fan of journaling, getting your thoughts out and putting them down on paper. And like, if you had a rough day, if you had a day with a lot of kind of those negative thoughts and blah, and I just don't feel like doing all the stuff today, why, you know, is there anything that happened? Is there, you know, did you see somebody on Instagram that made you feel like, Oh, I should be at this level and I'm not. And you know, what, what possibly triggered it and self-reflection is so powerful and being able to recognize what, what is bringing up the negative self-talk for you so that you have a chance to change it. Cause you can't combat it unless you understand what it is. And is it about, is it about body image? Is it about uh, monetary success? Is it about the prestige of the job? Is it whatever it is? Like, what is it about it? That's um, bothering you and triggering you. Um, and I think with, with journaling as much as it's kind of my go-to for people to teach them about it and to start learning it. But people also immediately are like, I don't have time to journal all day or like, that's not my thing. And I personally don't journal every day either. I have my notebook that sits by me. And if something is coming up, I'll just do it. Sometimes it's once a month. Sometimes it's more regular. It's just more about having a place to try to get those thoughts out um, and I think because uh, for a lot of creatives, again, we are more emotional, we are more in our heads and we're analyzing and we want a, a chance to get it out on paper and putting it in full sentences is actually really hard. And it allows you to look back and think about it. And then the other bonus to that is it allows you to see patterns. If you've written it down, you can kind of see and like, oh, I do every time I audition for this type of role or every time I have to sing or every time I have to, you know, there's something about it that I feel insecure about. Okay, what is that? How do I look at that? Patterns and seeing the patterns, you can see positivity, you can see gaps, see what is maybe that thing that's giving you a negative trigger. For example, I had a coaching client who um, their morning ritual was quite labored, so they'd always be rushing out the door and their walk to work, which was the quickest to the station, they walked down this glorious road, all of that, these gorgeous houses. And their mind, it triggered like on that walk, that 10 minute walk, look at these houses, I won't be able to afford that. I'm not in the job I want. Mm get on the train to work. And it's, it's a silly thing, but just swapping it and saying, set your alarm for five minutes earlier, do the longer walk around to the station. And it sounds so silly, but that actually really changed the Absolutely. way that person then approached their day. Yes, that's a huge shift. And so much, I think with mindset, we allow things to happen to us and then try to process it. And there are things where you can take that small amount of control, control the controllables. You can control how you walk to the station. And if that little shift changes your whole approach to your day, it's completely worth it. And, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people and giving mom advice out there to other, if there's other parents that they always say like, just get up before your kids, like do all the mindset work in the morning and like work out before they get up. And that's your that's the best way to do it. And I'm like, that's great. I am not a morning person. I do not function before 8am. It's just not, a, it's not possible. And so I tried to do it their way. And I was like, this doesn't work. And I had to reflect, I'm like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm more cranky when I take my kids to school. I'm like, this isn't working. And so I had to shift and find, well, I, I am an evening person. I'm up at midnight most nights and that's okay. So if I do kind of the me mindset prep at that part of the day, I do wake up better. So it's not about doing it somebody else's way or what some Instagram influencer is telling you to do or what another you know successful dancer is telling you to do what works for them. Take all that information and advice and ideas, but back to self-reflection, like, does it work for you? And if it doesn't, try something different. What actually would support you in your own morning rituals, evening rituals, 
how you go about your day to shape it in a way that's going to allow you to have more of those positive interactions. So let's talk about your podcast, The Passion for Dance. I would urge everyone in the arts to listen, because I think although it's got a slant to those in a dance team, they're really nice bite-sizable chunks as well, which is great. And you can kind of take away the psychology from it. You do great episodes on rejection, like resilience. I mean, it's based around four main pillars of content, I would say. Um, So can you tell us a bit more about The Passion for Dance podcast? Yes, thank you. Um, This is a new endeavor for me in that I have been kind of blogging and writing for a lot of years and decided that I wanted to start uh, doing the audio format. I love podcasts. I love listening to them. And it's, yeah, so the idea is just connecting the mental side of dance with any dancer who needs it. And so my you're right that it has a little bit of that competitive bent to it. and uh, But I think it applies to any sort of artist industry and you can take the lessons uh, in any way. It can be, you know, rejection from a competitive loss, from an audition, uh, if an episode like dealing with disappointment is just a life skill. <laughs> and I think as we <laughs> you learn so many life skills through dance, that can be one of them and, you know, being resilient. And so, yeah, the four main kind of pillars, I talk about motivation, uh, resilience, mindset, and then community. I want to have a big reason for this podcast was a chance to bring people together to talk and understand and grow together as a community. And I think partially, like you said about our U.S. experience here, it is so competitive that we can, people kind of hold things close to the chest and they won't necessarily share strategies and ideas. And I don't like that. And I want to break that down. I'm like, we can, you know, your success doesn't mean I have, have less success. <laughs> we can both continue to grow and improve. Um, so I like that opportunity to kind of support each other on our journeys. Typically the art, it's weird, isn't it? You'll be in the corps de ballet or the ensemble, which is like being together, but actually it's still quite singular, isn't it? Because you work hard to get there, then you have to maintain it. And then also you're then always thinking of the next job. So I think trying to build this sense of community. And also I love that what you said, your success will not mean like I won't be successful. And I find particularly in the in the, broad brushstroke of the term coach in regards to whether that's like a dance coach or a coach or mentor Mm -hmm. there is a lot of that I think isn't it it's like whose voice is louder who's better and actually it's like just because you're shouting louder doesn't mean you're actually a better coach (laughs) absolutely yes fantastic so let's talk about now you deal a lot with coaching coaches or coaching dance teachers and the fact of leadership and Mm -hmm. whether you stay in the world of dance or you um, use your skills your transferable skills and go into a different avenue there's always going to be that hierarchy whether you're the line manager or you have a leader can you talk to me a bit maybe about the mindset of being a quote unquote successful leader or maybe some skills you think leaders should exhibit or what good dance teachers should exhibit or what might be more damaging than you think? Because again, in dance, old school dance teachers back in the day who would mm-hmm. like um, have canes and hit you or like yep. use, I once, one of my ballet teachers said that her teacher used to have a lit cigarette under their legs so when they were doing like a developé, if it yeah. hit a cigarette, obviously that was many moons ago, but that kind of filters down, doesn't it? So can you talk a little bit about leadership for us? Yes, of course. Uh, So there's so many qualities to positive leadership, but a few of the ones that I uh, like to share and kind of focus on, one being as a teacher, understanding your own values 
and then bringing that with you to class all the time. And I keep going back to like that internal reflection. And I think this is an age thing too, that like, I wish I did this in my early twenties and didn't wait so long (laughs) to figure this out, but having a chance to think about like, what kind of teacher do you want to be? And what is your focus? And as we've talked about with those life lessons, like you're teaching life lessons, even if you're just teaching a ballet bar, but if you want to teach grit and resilience, you can be intentional about that. If you want to teach that feedback is good. If you want to teach control the controllables, like you can be intentional about that in every class and kind of how you show up. And I do take intention uh, kind of seriously as a teacher and a coach and say, like, if you just pause for a second at the very beginning of a class or the very beginning of, you know, a practice with your dancers and say, like, what is my intention today? What am I trying to communicate? What am I trying to do? And it can be as simple as like, everybody needs a little positivity to today, my intention is to smile more. (laughs) Like my intention is to, you know, something um, or something more serious or something dance related. Like my intention is to work on like face and our performance quality today. So we're going to do an easier combo and focus on the quality of performance. So, but that kind of intention just elevates your teaching, right? So it's, you get out of that rut because I think we all find that, that rut as a teacher of like, I'm going in, I'm doing class and I'm leaving. And it's the same old thing over and over again, but you can do the same thing with a different intention and create a very different lesson out of it. Um, so I think being more kind of mindful of that is really helpful as teachers. And then the second piece is about communication that makes a really good leader. Uh, this is a, this one's from Brene Brown, who is, I absolutely love and everything she writes and does. But one of her, I think it was in Dare to Lead, uh, talks about how clear is kind. And that as a strong leader, you have to be clear. You have to be clear about your expectations. And then you have to be clear in your feedback if those expectations are not met. You know, being really clear in offering negative feedback, you know, and really clear in what needs to change. And, you know, as a leader, if you are, you know, you own a studio or, you know, somewhere in a hierarchy where you have a lot of people underneath you, if you can't clearly and effectively communicate the positive and the negative, things are going to fall apart. So, and it's where a lot of leaders struggle is, you know, especially if you're a more emotional, empathetic person, you don't want to have the hard conversation. You don't want to tell somebody that, it, it doesn't matter. We always have those places where like, I don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> it's not fun. Um, but that's a really important part of leadership is learning to have that clear, effective communication that still has heart behind it. You're not like shutting off emotions. It's just bringing the heart into it and being empathetic, but being very clear. No, great. There's so much I want to unpack, but time is of the essence. Um, and one thing I think, <laughs> once you know your values it changes so much. And obviously we don't have time to dive down into those. So those listening in the mm-hmm. States do reach out to Chelsea. If you need some value exercises or those in the UK do reach out to me and we can look into that. But I want to quickly mm-hmm. talk to you um, before we wrap up about, are there any main reasons or rationale why you think young performers give up? And could you offer maybe a few words of advice that I hope someone who's listening, especially during a COVID time might be thinking, what's the point? There's no work or, although there is work coming, that's not me saying there is no work, but (laughs) we might be really going through it at the moment. Sure. I think you're totally right. We're going to come up across roadblocks and challenges and things that, and disappointment and rejection. And it's easy for dancers to want to give up. And you do see dancers give up, you know, too young or, you know, after 
when you wish they would keep going. And I, I do see it all the time. And I think it honestly, to kind of tie it back in, it control the controllables is one good mindset about that. So if you know, you're experiencing that rejection or that sense of defeat and taking a step back to analyze of like, okay, what can I control about this situation? Or if I'm really disappointed about something in the past, you can step back and think about the actual facts of the event. And oftentimes after a disappointment, we are, we're all emotional about it. And instead, if we can say, what was, what was truth there? Like, did that, uh, you know, what actually happened? Or am I making up a story? We make up stories in our heads a lot. Uh, so sticking with the facts can kind of help build that little bit of resilience and coming back and being able to just focus on what's in your control. Um, but taking it bigger picture uh, and staying motivated when things are hard and you don't know when your next job is going to come or you don't know what the industry is going to look like. Um, one of the kind of quotes that I have used most of my life that I really appreciate is a um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his staircase quote that is uh, that faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. And I think for a lot of, it's helped me so much in my career that like, I don't know where I'm going to be in a few years. And in COVID, it feels like, I don't know where I'm going to be next month, but it's like, even if you don't know the end result, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, have some faith. And that faith could look like anything. If you are a spiritual person, it can be faith. If it, it can just be faith in yourself and your own abilities, but hold on to your faith and just take that first step and let the rest unfold in front of you. And I think it's stuck with me personally because I am such a planner and a big dreamer. And like, I want to say, if I want this goal five years from now, I'm going to back it up until I know exactly what to do right now, but a lot's going to change on the way. And so being able to adapt is a big part of that. So just take that first step. And then when you get there, you learn, you get more information, you take the feedback and you take your growth mindset and you say, what's the next step? And what's the next step? And kind of let the staircase unfold as you're working for it. And that helps it helps my motivation some too, because it allows you to adapt and shift to the times a little bit better and allows you to, uh, you know, adjust your focus as you might need to, to maintain that kind of spark of passion. Of course, you keep saying so much stuff that I'm not going to dive into because I do want to let you go. <laughs> but I love the fact you said growth mindset and coming from a place of like abundance and not scarcity and working back from a goal. I love that idea and it's something I do. So yes, so I'm going to let you go. But last two questions. You've already sure. said one quote, but are there any other quotes or mantras that you implement or that you live by? I think it's, so the staircase quote is a big one for me and control the controllables is my like COVID mindset. <laughs> it used to really just be like my big competition day or like big day of whatever it is. Um, I even used that on my wedding day. It was like, I can't control the weather. I can't control, <laughs> it was going to rain. I was like, you can't control it. So let it go. And I'm only going to control, you know, so that's kind of my everyday one that really helps uh, my, my focus. And are there any books or is there anyone that's inspired you along your journey? Mm -hmm. So it could have been a book that changed your life, a, a teacher, a practitioner, who or what inspires you? Oh, goodness. So many good things. Uh, I think I am generally inspired by anyone who is going for their passion and so there's been a few people in my life who have done that. And, you know, as a young woman, one is my mom because she was a working woman who was an incredible mother and working. And I was always been inspired by that ability to balance. Uh, and 
my doctoral mentor in my PhD work uh, was a wonderful woman who was also very passionate, but compassionate with me and able to help with that. Uh, but in general, I think I just draw inspiration from anyone who is going for their own dreams and passions and doesn't give up on it. And they kind of remind me of my own positive mindset and resilience. And I can see that and be like, okay, nope, I have that. I can do that. And then later in life and kind of more recently, I've been inspired by my students. And I think that has really helped me of, you know, whether it's my college students at university or, you know, my dance students, if they are able to be resilient or they're able to say like this, you know, what we talked about in class today was so interesting to me. And it really made me rethink about life. and those little sparks. I'm like, okay, what I'm doing matters. What I'm doing helps someone. And I, I think we all need those little reminders that like all this effort and hard work is reaching someone is touching someone is doing something good in the world, whatever that is. And so I try to focus on those little small moments that of, of community and connection. And I love there that that kind of ticks that internal gratification because you're helping but also external because you're then seeing them improve and seeing their reaction so yes absolutely so where can people find you online so tell us about your podcast your website and obviously you offer consultancy so let us know how can people get in touch with you sure thank you uh i am on instagram a lot and i think as you alluded that's how we met i think that's really fun that you get to find connect there. So um, it's Dr. Chelsea Parati. Uh, and let's see, my website is chelseaparati.com. My last name is P-I-E-R-O-T-T-I. And I know that's tricky for people. It was tricky for me for a long time. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so I have um, some, I do virtual workshops as well, if travel is an issue, um, or, uh, you know, private consults. Um, but I also love uh, speaking and uh, those kinds of engagements, whether it's conferences or conventions, those kinds of things are always really fun. And I love traveling and cross our fingers. That's going to come back to us and we get to do more of that soon. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Amazing. That's- well, I will make sure to put all of those details in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. That was really fun. Dr. Chelsea, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be on the show. With the time difference, it was a bit of an early rise for you for this episode. So thank you so much. I'm sure you can all agree that the information she shared with us was invaluable. And although it comes from a place of science and education, she breaks it down into language in which dancers and creatives can process it more easily and hopefully adapt it into their lives and their careers. As I said, her contact details are in the show notes, so do go and give her a follow. Do reach out to her if you're looking for coaching, whether you are an individual or you teach at a dance school or have a dance team, whatever it is, do reach out. If you have enjoyed the episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave your review, and I'll be back next week with another episode.